0: So I'm, I'm interested in, uh, I have been praying and just, just this whole idea of God's grace. And, and I, I can't really explain why, but it just is something I can't get away from. And I've been just spending time with it. And, um, uh, I was, I was looking and just doing some research and finding some things. So I, I thought we would just share this together today. And this is just a video clip. These guys are called the skit guys. You've probably seen them before. And they kind of give a humorous idea and kind of a look at grace from a little bit of a different perspective. <clears throat> kind of an interesting story about these guys. They started out as volunteers in their church's youth group. And basically what would happen, they started doing this as high school guys. And the youth pastor, they would get there like an hour early. And the youth pastor would say, tonight's sermon is about this. And then they would go put a skit together for that, for that night. And that has turned into a not only a career, but I mean, that's what these guys do for a living. But. Here, just take a look and see what they have to say.
1: Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace.
2: and she said that the, there was an angel there and the angel said go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay he is risen and so me and John we tell it down there and if John says he beat me he's totally lying alright I beat him FYI alright you know and we get down there and I'm looking in that tomb and it is it is empty there's nothing in there you know what I'm saying and I'm like what does this mean what does this mean and John is right there John is so good at words he should write a book he is so good at words and John said
1: It's always about me. That's grace, Peter.
0: That's hard to live out, though, isn't it? Really? I mean, it's one thing to receive that kind of grace, and I cannot even imagine. I mean, they, they illustrated, you know, maybe a version of what happened with Peter that day and and it's, it's hard to even comprehend what Peter had to go through to, to see Christ again and to deal with what he had done. But we've done that too. But the other part about it is the way of grace. How do you live gracefully and in grace? I mean, we've received grace, grace that we didn't deserve, grace that we could never earn. Even if we did, like Peter said in that video, work our whole lives, we would never be good enough or, or earn it back or get it back into God's graces. There's that word again. And, but how do we do that? How do we live gracefully? I know in me, um, I always let myself off the hook because I know my motives. You know what I mean? Like I've, I used to say this all the time. I think, Nicole, laughed at me once or rolled her eyes for sure because I used to say I'm one of the nicest guys I know but I meant that I meant it and I think we say that about ourselves because we say that and we are nice because we're judging ourselves by our standard and I know what my motives were right Because I know even if I did something that appeared mean, there's a reason I did that that was actually okay because I know what I was thinking and feeling inside and there was a reason. I have a justification for that inside me. I know my motives. It may have appeared mean or cruel or I shouldn't have said it or insensitive or whatever, but the truth is inside there was a good reason for that. You just don't know what I was thinking or when I laughed inappropriately, (laughs) there was a reason that you don't know. But on the other hand, you, I judge you by your actions. And then I assume that I know what you were really thinking based on what I saw you do or the look I saw you give. That's what I do. And that's not a very graceful way to live, but that's what I do. It's how I've operated in my life. And there's this whole guilt and blame thing that we wrestle and struggle with. And and we want to put blame on others to take guilt off of ourselves. And some of that is real, though. I mean, if if we're really clear and honest about it I mean how many times have you heard a little kid maybe there's milk spilt on the table and what do they say I didn't mean to but that doesn't clean up the milk whether you meant to or not is, is really irrelevant to the fact that there's milk on the table it happened and they did it you're still responsible but there is measure there right and we as humans, we know that there is a measure of guilt and culpability and responsibility, and it, it gets a little clouded. And sometimes in our personal, interpersonal relationships, as we struggle back and forth with the guilt and blame thing, we want to be the judge of when it's guilt and when it's blame and who to pin it on and who not to pin it on. And, and really, that's, that's, uh, that's true and normal and fair, and not, not all of that is wrong. I mean, think about our penal system in the sense that You know, we have a lot of degrees, for instance, of guilt when it comes to someone's death. I mean, there's first degree murder, which is premeditated, planned out. You are super guilty. Then there's second degree murder where you knew about it, you're involved, but maybe you didn't have as much culpability as first degree. Then there's even other levels to it. You know, we have manslaughter where, yes, you killed the person, but legitimately you could say, what? I didn't mean to. I don't mean to spill the milk. And then there's even less culpability if it's self-defense. I mean, the person's still dead, but you were defending yourself, so it's justified, justifiable homicide. But there's still somebody dead. You see what I'm saying? There's, a, there's degrees in all of this, and this is all real, and we all, in our minds, we walk around with all of this, we, we have all this complexity and all these subtleties and all these nuances and, and how we we place and ascribe guilt and blame in our world. And a lot of times for ourselves, we keep all of that complexity, but then when we judge other people, we make it very simplistic. It's either they did it or not. It's their fault or not. I saw them, I know what they thought. They're just a jerk or whatever term you put on people that are the people you're blaming. And I know I do that. My guess is you do it too. And as you do that, the problem with it is that as you do it, <laughs> we all do it. And I think about it sometimes. I, I think there's, some, there's something about when you blame somebody, it makes you feel better, doesn't it? And I know that's a, that's a, that's a base reality of humanity, but we do it and it feels good. And if, if you could look deep into your own heart and just be really clear about it, you would, you would say that, yeah, I do feel good when it's somebody realizes it wasn't my fault. I don't want to take the blame if it really wasn't me. And it's nice sometimes when somebody else will take the blame. That's, that's who we are. That's real humanity. That's who we are as humans. And unfortunately, when that, when that is extrapolated out, just, not even just past us, but it goes on and on and on to nations and states and people really pay a horrendous price for that base kind of way that we are as humans and that quality that is built into us. But that's how we are. And there's something about it that kind of relieves us, at least in our mind, if we can compare ourselves to somebody else and show at least to us that I'm a little bit better or I wouldn't have done that or I would have done it different or at least I pick up after myself or whatever. Or I have a reason that I did it because of what happened to me or because I was at a disadvantage, now it's okay for me to do. And we have all of these reasons. And all those nuances that we play in our own minds. The problem with that is there actually is a real God and a real standard by which everything is measured. And none of those things change the fact that there is a true measurement. And he's the one who judges, not us. That changes everything. Everything. Everything changes when we measure it that way. I want to take us to a portion of scripture which um, I think has been mislabeled In the Bible. And some of you probably are rolling your eyes. Pastor Dennis, you always think the Bible's mislabeled. But I I, I do for a couple reasons, and I know I've explained this to you before that those labels didn't really come into scripture until the last you know thousand years or so. They weren't in the original writings. We didn't title those segments. Now there's a good reason for those segments of scripture to be to be titled, it helps us find them. You know, verse numbers are very helpful, chapters are very helpful. All of that is wonderful but sometimes I think there was a little bit of misplaced blame involved in sometimes how they were labeled. This portion of scripture we're going to look at, I wanna, what I would like to do is kind of give you the frame of reference because something else to understand, you know, we have, we have four gospels, we call them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, it's almost as if you've heard this, the old story about the four blind men who are trying to describe an elephant. And they're all at different parts of the elephant. You know, one's got the trunk, one's got the leg, one's got the tail. And I don't know what other part the other one has. I don't even, you know what I'm saying? And they're all describing different parts of the same. And what's great about scripture and what I love about the gospels is you have four different viewpoints of the same story in the same events. And, and it's really easy to see sometimes as you're looking through them, especially if you take the time to read an entire book of the Bible at one time. Now, Matthew is tough to do. Matthew's a long book. It's like 1,027 verses or something like that. And then Luke is 1,200 and something verses. I mean, those are, that's a long book. I realize that. But if you were to do that, you would start to see characteristics of the authors right inside those books. It's interesting when you do that. Matthew, for instance, we know he was a Jew. And what else? What did he do for a living before Jesus called him to be a disciple? Tax collector. And what do you, anybody here an accountant? I respect you. Can't relate to you, but I respect you. And what do we know about accountants? I mean, they keep their numbers in a row. Everything is detailed, organized. And if you look at the book of Matthew, what he did is he took the events of that that life. He kept it in basic chronological order, but then he arranged things to tell a story the way he saw it and wanted to tell it. And he arranged them very specifically. If you look at the book of Matthew, he'll have a section of dialogue between Jesus and the disciples, a teaching time. Then he'll have a section of dialogue of miracles. Then he'll have a section of teaching. Then he'll have a section of arguing with the Pharisees. And it's all categorized like that. He's, it's, it's fascinating. And the portion of scripture we're going to look at is in the book of John. And as John arranged his gospel, he arranged it in a specific way that I, that I think was on purpose because all these guys did things on purpose. They were trying to tell some, a certain kind of story. And in this portion of the book of John, what the, the actual story I want to look at is framed this way. It starts off here in chapter, John chapter 6. He starts off telling the feeding of the 5,000. Now, as John is telling the story, and I want you to take a big picture look at this. If you're looking at, at the feeding of the 5,000, what does that tell you about who Jesus is? I mean, he's a creative God. He could take, you know, two loaves and, or two fish and five loaves or whatever it was and multiply it to 5,000 or even more than that because they typically didn't count the women and children. So it could have been as many as, you've heard this before, 20,000 people there. Then they collected back up 12 baskets full that's an amazing miracle. It says a lot about Jesus. And at the same time, understand what that was doing and how it was frustrating the religious rulers of the day, because they didn't appreciate that Jesus was getting all this attention and that he was doing all these crazy miracles. And he was saying things that kind of undermined their authority and importance. (laughs) Then he walks on water. Oh my goodness. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? That's all I would need to see. And then He speaks out and he starts preaching some sermons that are difficult for people to hear. And he literally says, I am the bread of life. Notice what he did not do. He did not say, my teachings are the bread of life. That's what all the other religious leaders have done. He didn't do that. He said, I am the bread of life. And then he took it even a step further. And he said, if you eat of me, (laughs) people couldn't handle that. They didn't even understand what he was talking about and the bible specifically says that then he lost many disciples so what is happening the climate the political climate the religious climate people know that this is an amazing person he's got to be god or something is going on we don't know what's going on but then he's saying things that we don't understand and he's shaking up the whole religious establishment things are happening it is a big controversy tons of stuff is happening then you jump to john chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, it says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, which was his home turf, and he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. It was tough. And Jesus was aware of this. His disciples were definitely aware of this. Things were happening. Then came the Feast of Tabernacles. And I I have never done like a huge study of the Feasts of Israel, but I do know that there were three main feasts that Jews were expected to go to Jerusalem for. And if Jesus was going to be this, this religious ruler who some people thought was going to be a political ruler, then he needed to be where the people were and he needed to be in Jerusalem. So it was during this feast time that his brothers, and this is in the book of John, where it says that his brothers taunted him because they yet did not believe he was the Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? They grew up with Jesus and they didn't believe that he was the Christ. And they said, Hey, if you're really the Christ, you need to be there and do some stuff. And Jesus said, no, it's not my time. So he didn't go right away. But what he did do is now at the festival of the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus. See, they were looking for him and they expected him to be there. Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering. Well, that's a hard to read. There were widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him because they fear well, the fear of the religious leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. Look what he did. He went right up and began to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? He didn't go through the normal channels, he didn't go to Bible college. He didn't do the normal thing that the religious rulers of his day were expected to do. And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Now, you and I read that and we just kind of gloss right over it. Yes, he's God and he came from, we know he's born of a virgin. Okay. When Jesus said that kind of stuff to Jewish people, that was really irritating to the religious rulers because they knew what he was really saying. What he's saying is, I came from God. My teaching comes from God. I'm from God. That is a statement of divinity, which they could not handle. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man that they are trying to kill? It was obviously well known. it circled around, you know, publicly that the Jewish leaders were after him, but he's here speaking publicly and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? You know, that had to really irritate them even more because now they're being misunderstood because they, they don't feel like it's time to grab him. Yet, because they're not grabbing him, some of the people are thinking, wow, maybe, really, maybe they've, they've realized he's the Messiah. Oh, so at this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. And they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees had had enough and they sent the temple guards to arrest him. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And at that, you can imagine how that really, really irritated the people or the religious leaders. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. I mean, Jesus is proclaiming his messiahship. He's proclaiming his spiritual authority. He had already demonstrated his power and authority as the creative God. He had already established all that. And he's now preaching this message that is really, really ruffling the feathers of the religious rulers of the time. And the, uh, this is titled, I think this is accurately titled, but the title would be like in the NIV or a lot of Bibles would say unbelief of the Jewish leaders. And finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? And I love this line here. And the guard said, no one ever spoke this way. The man, this man does. It's great. Cause they sent the guards to arrest him. And yet the guards were just sitting there amazed and they couldn't arrest him. It's amazing. So it's also in the book of John, you know, the, when Jesus is in the garden of, of Gethsemane and the guards come to get him, uh, there's another little interesting thing that John throws in that nobody else throws in because here the guards can't arrest him. And then in that story right there, they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember the story? And he answers and he says, and they said, you know, do you know where he is? And he says, I am he. And then they all fall down. Boom. It's amazing. The power that was just in him all the time, living. So here in chapter 8 is the story I want to get to. And I think it should be labeled the way of grace. But can anybody just tell me what it's labeled? Come on, Bible scholars. No Bible quizzers in here? John chapter 8. The woman caught in adultery. Is that really the focus of the story? I mean, she's the focus of the story, but that's not, that's such a negative illustration of what the story's about. That's not what the story's about. The story is the way of grace. The story is an illustration of Jesus shows us how to live in grace, how we should be living in grace, how we should treat people in grace. So let's take a look at it. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. This is right after they tried to arrest him and the guys couldn't do it. So at dawn, he appears in the temple courts, kind of like the men's breakfast at 530. Where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach him. Now, he sat down because that's how Jewish leaders taught. They sat and you stood. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher. Which of course they didn't mean, but that's, they had to use that respectful title, rabbi to him. You know, they didn't see them as their teacher, but that was, you know, kind of almost a sarcastic teacher. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Because obviously, if he said she shouldn't be stoned, then he would be going against the law of Moses and the people wouldn't follow him. And if he said, go ahead and stone her, kill him. The Jews didn't have the right because they're under Roman control. They couldn't, they couldn't execute a death sentence at this time. That's why even when Jesus was put to death, had to be at the hands of the Romans. The Romans had to do it, not the Jews. The Jews weren't allowed to do it. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, I imagine I can, in, in my mind, you know, I know you've seen this probably portrayed in different ways. You know, like I know it's in The Passion of the Christ. It's in Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth different movies you've probably seen, or maybe you've seen it in plays. And I, what I imagine is them just badgering him. Like, have you ever been in a market where people are just arguing or, or trying, to, trying to debate or get a price down or something like that? That's what I imagine. They just keep "Well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he's just kind of sitting there, not even bothered by their banter. I mean, here's the king of kings, the creator of the universe sitting there and these mere mortals who think themselves so important, so in charge, so righteous are just badgering him about the fate of a woman that they have here, that they brought in here to trap him. He straightened up. And I wondered there, you know, I've read this and I've wondered when he straightened up, I wonder if they felt anything then kind of like they did in the garden or something. You know, I wonder, I, I mean, it doesn't say that there. It's just me wondering, He straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Then the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and live. leave your life of sin. Or my favorite is just, you know, growing up with the King James is go and sin no more. We don't talk like that anymore, but go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. I would have been happier if this section of scripture would have been titled that. Go and sin no more. Here's the problem. Those Pharisees are, are really us. Really, that's us. We are them, and we live in this legalistic morality where it's all based on rules and measures, and if I do more than this, it's almost like we've adopted this, some sense of karma where if I do enough good things, then it'll rule out all my bad things. And we try so hard to balance that where we make all these rules to fit and to make, to make it so that we can edge around things and get as close to the edge as possible. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? You know, the, we... We may criticize the Jews for, the, you know, the, they have a collection of laws to supplement the law and scripture, over 600 laws to interpret the 10 commandments. And then they would find ways to get around those. But they're not the only ones. The Jews weren't the only ones that do that. Almost every religion does that. And we do that. We do it. We make little excuses, just like I was talking about before, because we know our motives. And it's okay for me, because... I'm me, right? Here's the problem. Legalistic morality has this gotcha thing to it. Kind of like what they were trying to do to Jesus. They thought they had him pinned. And I love, I love that he's always more clever than them. I mean, can you imagine really? I mean, it's like you're trying to trap a, you know, a super genius or something, you know, I mean, he, He created their mouths and their tongues and their minds in the first place. You know, he knew their thoughts before they came up. And it's just like, it's not even fair. But they're trying to trap him. It's all about trapping him. It's about a gotcha moment. It's not about truth. It's not about finding the truth. It's not about about real morality. It's about this legalistic way of, I can pin this down and I can make her look bad. And what are you going to do about it? What do you say? How sad is it too? They totally depersonalize this woman. I don't know what she'd done. And as I was watching different video clips, just, you know, preparing for today, I, I had uh, I, watched one and, and in one, they portrayed her kind of as, a, as maybe a prostitute. I never thought of that before. I never, I never thought of her being a prostitute. Maybe she was. I don't know, but in this one video, they clearly, you know, she had jewelry on that, you know, which wasn't common in the scene and just, she looked kind of like a Jezebel or something. Never thought of that. Maybe she was, I don't know. Does that make her less important to God? The fact is everybody's important to God everybody he died for all of us not just the good ones it's like he died more for really nice people and then less i mean he died for her whoever she was and we don't know the situation of her life we don't know all we know is that that she didn't matter to them all she was to them was a pawn a tool in their hands to try to get Jesus trapped and how many times do we depersonalize people in our lives and we just see them as obstacles or, or things to get out of the way or things to move or maneuver and they're not real anymore. They're not people. They don't have personalities and lives and cares and dreams and hopes and, and heart. <laughs> they were very selective, weren't they, in their outrage? Selective outrage. You may hear that in the political season we're in. People get angry about this one thing somebody says, and yet at the same time, they're not angry about this, and it just shows the hypocrisy that we all live in all the time. I think as human beings, we, we want, we desire so much to see a consistency in, in all, everything that, that our values and our words all and our actions all line up and say the same thing. But what's sad is so often, you know, we look for those inconsistencies, and we're so selective when, when we're outraged of what, what it is, what sin it is that upsets us. Because clearly... And, and probably you thought this right away, and you've probably heard a sermon about this or two, but there was a, another person involved, right? <laughs> and where was he? Was he one of them? I mean, who was he, you know? And what's sad about it is in their selective moral outrage, not only that, but they completely disregarded the law. I mean, we know from the New Testament, Paul says God does not show favoritism. And you know, you see that throughout the entire Old Testament. But there are certain specific things in the law of Moses that they specifically ignored. And these are the guys who are all about the law. I mean, it would have been just as easy for Jesus to quote the scripture to them, and they would have all been humiliated and humbled. I don't know. But if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife or of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. That's the law they're referring to. And if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. But the way of grace is different. What Jesus did was he, he illustrated for them the fact that we are all guilty. When he said, you who is without sin, throw the first stone. I mean, he was, that, was, that was what really Paul echoed you know, years later when he wrote, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus was just saying that in front of all of them in a real life experience. And then Paul wrote it into you know, the book of Romans but all of us have sinned. There's universal guilt here. All of us are sinners. You've probably heard that saying that, that it's level at the foot of the cross. It's level both ways. It's level because we all stand not only in need of forgiveness, but we all receive forgiveness the same. It's level there. None of us get more of it or deserve more of it. We all are sinners. Something else that he did, Jesus did, in the way of grace is the fact that when he said you who's without, who's without sin, throw the first stone. He illustrated for them in a real way that all of us stand beside her accused. When they drug her in there, do you know how pious and pompous and righteous they felt? Do you realize that some of them would have had to go through purification after touching her? They couldn't have gone in the temple for seven days or whatever. Maybe you didn't think about that. But for them to drag her in there meant they were touching a woman, not only that, if she was a prostitute or anything else, then touching her meant that they were ceremonially impure. So I'm sure as they were doing that and grabbing her, they were disgusted. And yet when Jesus said, you who's without sin, throw the first stone, I guarantee you they realized I'm standing next to her now. I'm not over her. She's not under my feet. I'm next to her. We are the same. We stand equally accused. Imagine yourself at court and you're standing at the counter. We're equally accused there. What's wonderful about the way of grace is Jesus could have judged her because scripture clearly says she was guilty. And then later, Jesus clearly points out that she was a sinner. Don't ever think that he overlooked her sin. He said, go and sin no more. In other words, she was guilty of sin. He could have judged her right then, but what he did was he suspended the condemnation that she deserved and gave her grace. Wow. Wow. He offered her redemption when he could have condemned her. Instead, he offered her redemption. That's the way of grace. Legalistic morality, going back to them, it's impersonal. She has no personhood, it's selective. We talked about that. And then it's punishment oriented. What are you going to do? Can we throw rocks at her yet? That's how we look at everything. We want to jump to that conclusion and exact the punishment and decide what it is. But we can't. Instead, of course, adultery is wrong. That's not even a point. But the idea is the difference between vengeance and redemption. I wonder sometimes if there isn't a little bit of projection in the sense that we know that we are guilty and we know we deserve punishment, and that's why we want to inflict it so much on other people or see it done on them or have a measure of, of punishment for them till we feel like they've, they're sorry enough. I don't know. But that kind of punishment-oriented uses people as pawns. But the way of grace, the way Jesus did it, I love this. The righteousness that he showed there was contagious. What did he tell her? Go and sin no more. I love that. Here's what I love about it. I love it because you're not stuck in your sin. He didn't, this kills me because if let's say she was a prostitute, we don't know that. I've never even thought that before, before looking at those videos this week. Never even thought that before. And maybe she was, I don't know. But let's say she was. What Jesus was telling her is you're not stuck in that. You're not stuck in that lifestyle. He said, go and sin no more. That means that we aren't stuck. We can move beyond whatever sin that may have a hold of us now. Righteousness is contagious. You know what else I love about it? She was drawn to him. The sinners in scripture were drawn to him. Not because he accepted their sin, but because he accepted them. And then they wanted to be righteous like him. That's how how people should respond to us. And if we are living the way of grace, our righteousness, now some people, Jesus also said that, you know, some people are going to reject us because of our righteousness. But the fact is that there's going to be a lot of people who want what you have because you're living righteously. He gave her hope the way of grace is about hope. Not only is there a better life for you, but you can do it. You can believe it. There's nothing more sad than people who've lost hope, who think that there's nothing better. or I can't do any better, or this is it for me. That's that's where people die and shrivel up and it's over. But if you can give them hope, there's more to life than this. I love this too. Maybe you never saw it this way before, but Jesus even gave grace to the accusers think about what he did. Think about what he did. If it was me, God, God knows you're lucky. I'm not God. Huh? If I was Jesus, I'd have been like, oh, for real. Well, how about you? And when you cheated so-and-so, and how about you? When you slept with him and, or her, you know what I'm saying? That's what I'd have been doing. I'd have been reading their mail right in their face and up in their, up in their face. I'd have been all in their business and it would have been in public for everybody. That's what I'm talking about. And then I'd have said, don't you feel better now? See, they're no better. than." I mean, that's not Jesus. What did he do? We don't know what he did. You know, there's all these theories about what he wrote in the dirt. I mean, he could have done a lot of things. I mean, I've heard people say he actually maybe wrote some of their sins or maybe some of their names or the people they had hurt or cheated or whoever. I've heard those kind of things. And then some people have said, well, you know, God wrote the 10 commandments with his finger. It specifically says he was writing with his finger, not a stick or something. Maybe he started writing the commandments. He might have. Because we're all guilty of those commandments. I don't know. We know that in the book of Matthew, it, you know, he said on the Sermon on the Mount that if you have lusted after a woman in your heart that you've committed adultery with her, and maybe he wrote that. I don't know. We don't know. What we do know is this, that he, he said that and then he looked back down. And what did he do? What, in doing that, he allowed them to slip away in grace i don't know if i'd have done that i mean i was kidding about the other stuff kind of but i might have said hey whoa, whoa, whoa where are you going you don't have anything else to say are you done are we done here are we good because if you want to you know if you want to come and bring it again we can go another round i mean that's how you know but that's not the way of grace that's not christ he let them go in grace and who knows what happened to those guys I wonder if some of them maybe followed him later because of the grace they received that day and in the humility of christ and the way he he allowed them to walk away and grace is personal it you know I, I, um i'm a i'm a history geek whatever politics person i you know what makes me sad i've traveled different countries when people don't have a sense of personhood individualism and i know that there can be negatives to that but here's the thing that concept comes out of scripture because god loves us as people it's personal this grace is personal he treated her like a person i bet you very few other people ever did and again we don't know her background again i've never thought of her as being a prostitute till today or this week but how many prostitutes get treated like people by the son of God himself by the holiest man who ever lived the purest man that ever lived and as dirty as she probably felt at that moment her her secret sin exposed to the world and he treated her like a person he probably looked in her eyes probably the first time a man looked at her in a wholesome way and loved her like a person that's the way of grace it's solidarity with the person in their sin not superiority over them. It's it's different. It's redemptive. It frees people from the inside out. If we could only grasp that we treat people that way, that we live our lives that way, that we change the entire way that we live, it's all through us. It's inside of us. It's just what's going to come out all the time. That grace needs to be in you. By whose standard? Of course it's his not ours 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 just fails we have moving scales all the time he never does it's his standard we treat people the way they should be treated all the time because it's the way he treats them he's the measure we measure how we treat people by how christ treated them no matter what they've done no matter where they've come from no matter no matter what we treat them like him and what's your motivation for that It's no longer power over it or defend yourself or to look better. None of that matters anymore. The motivation is because we love God. And because we love God, we love others. And it's our love for them that motivates us to treat them different. It just, it changes everything. And the authenticity that comes from that, if you really are doing it because it's real, people know and they see it in you. And people read us all like a book. I know you know that. And we could talk about Paul talking about living letters and all. But the fact is that they know who you are by the way you treat people. They watch. Everybody watches They see how you look at the people who can't do anything for you. The people who treat, if you treat, you know, if you treat certain people nicer because they can do something, I mean, people watch, they know. And if it's authentic, it's authentic. So what do we do as a church? What do we do? How do we do things different? What do we do? What we do then is we do treat people different. It's different. If it's in you, it's going to come out at every, every point. What does this grace in you look like? It looks different for all of us, but it looks different in the way you treat your spouse. And the way you treat your friends and your family and your kids and people you work with and people who've offended you and people who've wronged you, all of that will be different. I have a video clip, and this one, um, I think it speaks for itself. We'll just watch this. That's not me, by the way. (laughs) Can you shut your eyes with me for a minute? Everybody's eyes shut for just a second. Here's the thing. Sitting in this room today, I'm sure that there's some of us that are more in need of grace than others. That's God's business. And if that is you, I challenge you. I plead with you. I implore you to call out to him. He is gracious. He loves you. He loves you just how he made you and who he created you to be. And he, he wants a desire bad enough for you to send his son here to die for you. For all of us, it comes down to this. We need to live this way of grace. It needs to be in us, just like that guy in the video. It needs to be right inside of us. So much inside of us that it comes out in every way we respond, how we act, how we live. I just want to pray for you. Would you stand with us tonight? I'm going to pray over us and just ask that God would would create himself in us. And that that way of grace would be exactly how we live. Father, we, we don't measure up so often.